0: So we're in Galatians 5. Tonight we're going to look at verses 1 through 15. Uh, Galatians is probably the first, the earliest letter or the earliest book of the Bible written. We don't know that for sure because they didn't put dates on them, but uh, that's what we think. It's almost certainly the first letter Paul wrote that that appears in Scripture, and it's written to confront legalism bad religion. And I'm going to define, I'm going to do my best to define legalism a little bit later. But this was a church in Galatia that Paul had helped planted, actually a, a number of churches in Galatia, uh, which is a region in modern day Turkey. And they had been, they had come under the influence of false teachers who told them they, even though they had accepted Christ, been baptized, were doing their best to follow the Lord. They weren't really saved because they hadn't Uh, come in through the law of Moses. Their men hadn't been circumcised. They weren't eating according to the dietary laws. They weren't observing uh, the the feasts and festivals and fasts of the Old Testament. And so until they did all that, they couldn't really consider themselves saved. Um, So the first two chapters of Galatians are Paul defending his own ministry, his own apostleship, why would you listen to me unless you believed I really came from the Lord? And then the middle two that we just finished last week were him making a theological argument that says the gospel is better than the law. Grace is better than law. You cannot get saved through obedience to the law of Moses, which again, when you think about where Paul came from as a, as a Pharisee, wow, the, the way God changed his thinking. He would have, he would have wanted to kill anybody who said the things he said in chapters three and four. Chapters five and six, the third, the last third of the book are about the practical application of all this. How do you really live this out? So I don't know how many of y'all are movie fans, but back in 2000, there was a movie that came out called The Family Man. It wasn't a big hit, uh, but it was, in fact, this is how long ago it was. Nicolas Cage was the star and he was still a big actor back then. So in the movie, he plays a guy who's this very successful businessman, millionaire, jet set type. And he gets visited on Christmas Eve by an angel. So, of course, it reminds us of It's a Wonderful Life. It is not as good as It's a Wonderful Life, in case you're wondering. Um, But the angel says to him, listen, I want to give you a chance to see what your life would have been like if instead of going off and becoming rich and successful, you had married your college girlfriend and just see what your life would be like today. So he wakes up it's Christmas morning. He's surrounded by all these kids in this suburban house. His old college girlfriend is his wife, and he finds that he's not this big shot businessman. he's the assistant manager of his father in law's tire shop um, So the rest of the movie proceeds from there and you you i won't I won't spoil it for you in case you want to watch it. My point is. It's a movie about a hinge point in life where, okay, if I marry this person, my life goes this way. If I don't, I go that way, right? And we can all probably look at our lives and see hinge points like that. Decisions we made. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop out of school and take this job, or I'm going to, I'm gonna move to this city. Uh, or I'm going to marry this person, or I'm not going to marry that one. They're, those are those hinge points that that make a determination of which direction our life is going to go. Paul in this passage is putting a hinge point before the Galatians. He's he's given them all the arguments they need. Now he's now he's bringing it to a point of decision. Y'all have to decide. If you go this way, this is what's going to happen. If you go that way, that's what's going to happen. And that's what we're looking at tonight understanding that we face the same hinge point as the Galatians on a regular basis. This is not irrelevant. This is, people skim past the book of Galatians all the time because they don't understand what it means. What I hope to show you tonight, I hope I've been showing you all along, but especially tonight in the preceding weeks, is how relevant this is for us today. So verse one, uh, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again, to a yoke of slavery. Now that's not my favorite verse of Galatians that would be Galatians 2:20, but it's probably the most important verse. In fact, I would say if there was one thing, one sentence Paul wanted the Galatians to remember from this letter, it was this sentence right here. Christ has set you free so that you could live free lives. He does not want you to go back to a yoke of slavery. Uh, He was trying to set the hinge point between them. The choice is, do you want a religion that's based on law, on legalism, or do you want a religion that's based on the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because you cannot have both. And that's important for us to understand. Let me define for you what I mean when I say legalism. Now, I'm not making this definition up. This comes from uh, a guy named R.C. Sproul. Some of you are familiar with him. He's now in heaven, but a prolific writer. He said there's, there's three kinds of legalism, all right? There's, number one, there's reducing Christianity to nothing but rules. This is the person who says, well, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. Or the person who says, I'm a Christian, so that means I go to church and I follow the Ten Commandments. Now, not many people who are Devout Christians and serious churchgoers believe this. This usually comes from your nominal Christians or people who aren't Christians at all, but that is a kind of legalism. So it's the other two that we're really concerned with. The second kind is when we follow the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. Uh, it, it's like when your, your son, you tell your son, uh, you, you can't eat uh, any cookies between now and supper. And so as soon as supper's over, he eats all the cookies. You are know, like, okay, you, you missed the point completely. You know, it's not, just, it's not just that you can't eat between now and then. It's, 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 it's I want you to eat good food. Um, so an example is Jesus heals on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees immediately attack him. They say, oh, you've broken the law. You've broken the law of Moses. Uh, you're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. Now, anybody who's read the Old Testament knows that it doesn't say specifically that you can't heal on the Sabbath. But in their minds, healing was work. And God did say, don't work on the Sabbath. So to them, Jesus had broken the most important commandment, the commandment that that set Jews apart from Gentiles, and so there's no way he could be Messiah. In fact, he should be condemned. And Jesus' point was, what do you think God cares more about? Do you think he cares more about uh, whether you keep your idea Of what the Sabbath is or whether you help someone who's in need Jesus even points out you wouldn't hesitate to to pull your ox out of a ditch on the Sabbath don't you think this person is more important than an ox that's an example of following the letter of the law but ignoring the spirit of it the spirit of the law says this is about God and God cares about people Um, I'll give you a modern-day example If you have a friend, uh, a woman comes to you and says, "My husband is threatening to kill me," and if your advice to her is, "Well, the Bible says submit to your husband," that's obeying the letter of the law, not the spirit of it. God does not want you to send that woman back to her to her home to get killed. God wants you to intervene for that woman, to defend her, to protect her, to do whatever you can. Um, so this is, this is what we're talking about. That's the kind of legalism we're talking about, following the letter of the law, not the spirit of it. And then there's the third kind, which I think is the most common. This is one, as long as churches are made up of human beings who are sinners, which means until Christ returns, we're always going to see this in churches. We're always going to have to fight against it. The, the, the point is just never let this take control the third form of legalism, according to R.C. Sproul, is adding our own rules to God's law and treating them as divine. Now, we as Baptists know all about this, don't we? We know because we grew up being told that drinking alcohol is a sin. You can't find that in Scripture. You really can't. That is adding to God's law. Now, please understand I hope nobody checks out after I just said that. I'm not saying that God wants us to go out and get drunk. In fact, I'm not a I don't drink myself and I have my reasons for that. I'm going to get to that in a moment, but but to say that drinking alcohol is a sin is to add to scripture and to make your opinion divine. Even though Your opinion might be right for some people. It might actually be good for some people. In fact, I think it is. Give you another example. Uh, You know, this is definitely not a thing anymore in Baptist churches. But when I was a kid, you you didn't go to dances, right? I mean, there were people my parents' age who remembered people getting kicked out of the church because someone said they saw them going into the dance hall, right? And, And that's really hard. To, to reconcile with scripture. Now, could you say, you know, a lot of the things that go on in those dance halls, you need to avoid that. Yeah, that's probably really good advice. But to say, if you go there, you've sinned, that's adding to scripture. That's legalism. That's, that's adding something to the Bible. You can probably come up with your own examples. Maybe where you grew up, it was a sin to play cards or to, to go to the movies or, you know, uh, you know my, my wife's family, some of the best Christians I've ever known. Great, great people. And yet to them, to go to a store and shop on a Sunday was a sin. But they'd go out to eat on Sundays, which I never understood. So, so this is what I'm talking about is adding to the word of God your own interpretation and making it divine in your mind. It's fine to have opinions. It's good to have convictions. It's even good to try to convince people, you know, I really think we'd all be better off if we just made a bond among ourselves. We're just not going to touch alcohol. That's a great thing, as long as you're doing it for the right reasons. But where it gets into legalism is when you say, anybody who steps out of this line that I have set for myself is therefore a sinner. And after a while, you start to feel very superior to those who don't follow your own standards. So, What's not legalism? Well, obviously, when you stand firm on the commands of Scripture, faithfully and graciously applied, that is simply being biblical. I bring this up because there will be people sometimes who will get upset if a preacher preaches and says, such and such is a sin, this is the way we should live, or or you know, a discussion in your family. Uh, your parents will say, "You know, the, the scriptures tell us that we cannot do this. That you are to obey your mother and father. You are to, you know, you cannot lie. You cannot, you cannot sleep with your girlfriend." Well, that's legalism. No, that's trying to be faithful to the Word of God. That's that's a difference. I'll tell you another, and this is important. It's not legalism to create policies that help an organization, whether it's a family or a school, or an office, or even a church to function. I'll tell you this, if an employee of First Baptist Church just stopped showing up to work, they would lose their job. Now, that's not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not skip work, right? Thou shalt not uh, fail to show up between 8.30 and 4.30. It doesn't say that in the Bible, and yet we're not being legalistic because we're not saying it's a sin. We're saying that's required to work here. Okay, so policies are not legalism, and the third, and this is what I was getting to earlier, setting rules for yourself is not legalism. If somebody comes to you and says, "Well, why didn't you go to that movie?" All of us enjoy that movie, and you say, "Well, I just I don't think I should see a movie with that kind of content. I think it would put thoughts in my mind that are not good for my soul." And some people might say, "Well, you're just being a legalist." No, you're not. You're being wise and discerning and trying to be careful about about serving the Lord in the best way you can. When it becomes legalism, is when you say, "I'm not going to that movie," and if you do, you're a sinner. As I said earlier, I have my own reasons that I don't drink, uh, but those and that's worked well for me, very, very well for me. It saved me a lot of money for one, um, and and you know, another good reason is I, I have a hard enough time trying to be like Jesus when I'm totally in control of my faculties. I'd hate to see what had happened if I wasn't. So I have my reasons, and they're working well for me. But that doesn't mean that if I go into the restaurant and I see a church member having a glass of wine, I'm going to run back to the church and, and try to get them thrown out. Then it would be legalism. Okay, so that's, that's legalism. The rest of Galatians is going to be look at the fact that liberty, Christian liberty, freedom from that stuff, actually leads to holiness. Whereas legalism, even though it looks like it does, never can. You can never become holy by being a legalist. And that's what, that's what confuses people, because they'll look at a legalist and they'll say, man, he looks miserable, but I guess he's holy. I mean, good for him. He's, he, I guess he's storing up treasure in heaven, but man, he is, he is just a horrible person to be around. That's not correct. A person who is a legalist is not holier than someone who is not, and we'll, we'll show you why. All right, so verse two. I promise every verse isn't gonna have that long of an explanation, but verse two. Look. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If this is your first night in this study, circumcision is a big, big uh, uh, item in the book of Galatians because it's sort of symbolic of that's how you become Jewish if you're a male. Uh, So, He says, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified from the law, by the law. You have fallen away from grace. This is an important, this is, this is important to be clear on because this is one of those verses, one of those passages that if you take it out of context, it sounds like it's possible for a Christian to lose their salvation. And I don't, and traditionally Baptists don't, and many other Christians traditionally don't believe that that's possible. Why? Because Jesus said, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Once you've given them to me, Father, no one's going to snatch them out of my hand. So so what is Paul saying then? If he's not saying that if you get circumcised, you're out of the family, and you're going to hell, what does he mean? All right. First of all, he's telling them if... They pursue the path of legalism. Remember, this is about a hinge point. From this point on, you can pursue a path that is all about rules, all about uh, living up to the standards of other people. It's all about making yourself holy in an external sense, or you can follow a path of grace. He's saying if you pursue that path of legalism, then you don't have the benefit of grace anymore to make you holy. And we'll talk in a minute about how grace makes you holy But he's he's saying, if you go that way, you'll never get to where you think you're going to get. See, here's the thing with legalism. Here's why legalism can never make you holy. You ready? Because legalism will do one of two things to your soul. It will either make you self-condemned or self-righteous. It'll make you self-condemned because uh, you'll realize I can never live up to all these laws. I'm a terrible person, and you'll think your whole life. Uh, if God even lets me into heaven, I doubt He will. If God even lets me into heaven, I'll be the the door sweeper at best. I'll, I'll be I'll, I'm just I'll be picking up the the poop of the horses or whatever. I, I'm 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 worth nothing because I can't keep these rules. You'll be self-condemned or. You might be one of those people that's wired in such a way that you're good at keeping rules. Some of us are. And by the way, I've noticed that those kinds of people are drawn to churches. I'm one of them. I'm not not bagging on you. So if you're one of those people, you won't become self-condemned. Legalism will make you self-righteous because you'll look around and you'll say, I'm not perfect, but I'm way better at keeping these rules than most of these other people. And you'll become very self-righteous, very judgmental, very hateful even towards people in your own church, but especially towards people outside your church. Well, people in those other churches, good grief. If they're, if they're in heaven when I get there, I don't know if I want to be there, right? And those people, that don't go to church at all. Well, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the fact that they won't be there. This is what legalism leads to. It leads to a, a sense of self-righteousness that makes you hateful. But the gospel, grace makes you humble. See, grace... We think of grace as a free pass, but it's not. We're going to get into that next uh, in two weeks when we go on with the rest of Galatians. Grace is a constant reminder that you couldn't do it on your own. You needed someone to rescue you. And there's nothing that keeps you humble more than every day realizing, Lord, if I don't have your help today, I'm going to hurt people that I love. If I don't have your help today, I'm going to drive people away from Jesus. If I don't have your help today, I'm going to do things today that I'll regret the rest of my life. So today, before I even take another step, I am calling on your grace to prepare me and, 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 and equip me to make good choices today, to, to do the right thing, to represent you well. That's how the gospel makes you holy. If you, we think of the gospel as, oh, yeah, I, I walked the aisle, I prayed the prayer, I got baptized, and then I was saved. Yes, that's just the beginning, though. The gospel is every day, every time you call out on God and say, Lord, I repent of my sins. Lord, I need your help. Lord, forgive me. Lord, change me. Lord, set me on the right path. The gospel makes us holy because it makes us humble. And when we're humble, we treat others the way we we should. And remember, that's what Jesus said the essence of the Christian faith is. Love the Lord and love your neighbor. And the legalist does not love his neighbor. It just It's impossible because they're either self-condemned or they're self-righteous. So, verse five. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So Paul makes this point because... He, he wants you to know, I'm not condemning people who are circumcised. I'm circumcised myself, Paul says, as a, as a proud Jewish man. It's just that it has nothing to do with salvation. It's a fine thing if if you want to do it, but it doesn't save your soul. We And we can apply that to any external thing you want to name, whether that's church attendance. Man, do I value church attendance? You better believe I do. Whether it's giving, whether it's scripture memory, uh, whether, it's, uh, whether it's witnessing. These are all wonderful things. But if, you're, if these are notches on your belt that you think make God love you any more, then you're mistaken. Uh, we don't make ourselves righteous. We are given righteousness as we follow the Holy Spirit. Uh, I've heard it said this way, and I love it. Grace means there is never, ever anything you can ever do to make God love you any more than he already does or any less. God will always love you the same amount because of grace. And that's good news. And if that frustrates you, it's because you've been influenced by the gospel of legalism, the false gospel of legalism that says, I can earn points. I can get ahead of that guy over there. No, that's not the way it works. The true sign that you're saved is not any external Act. It's not even baptism, as as wonderful as that is. The true sign that you uh, are obedient to the Lord, that you've truly been saved, is that you're growing in your ability to love. That's the whole point Paul makes in these first 15 verses. All right, so verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So there's, Paul's great. He's a great preacher. He's great at using images. He uses two separate images here. The first one is the image of a runner, a runner who's gaining ground, a runner who's picking up speed, a runner who is on his way to winning the race. And then somebody cuts him off right? Somebody runs out in front of him and stops him. Uh, Does anybody remember, this was back in the 80s, in the Olympics, uh, the United States had a runner named Mary Decker, and she was the best in the world at her event. Uh, I believe it was the the 3200, but I could be wrong. And there was this little uh, South African runner named Zola Budd. I remember this because it was the first Olympics I I remember clearly watching. Zola Budd was interesting because she ran barefoot. So Zola's winning the race, Mary Decker's gaining on her, and uh, Mary tries to pass her, and Zola tries to cut her off and trips her. And she falls. She's out of the race. And Zola Budd is so distraught from it, she finishes last. But I think about that when I think about this, this idea of, you were running so well, who hindered you? Who, who got in your way? He knows the answer to the question. These people who've come from uh, Jerusalem saying, you're not really saved. It makes Paul angry. Because these were the people he had led to the Lord; these were the churches he had planted, and to see this incredible growth and this this uh, w- these wonderful things God is doing suddenly suddenly short circuited by these legalists from Jerusalem makes him angry. The other image he uses is the image of yeast in a lump of dough. Now that's a common imagery in the Scriptures. There's a reason why at Passover time the Jews would would get rid of all the yeast in their house. They wouldn't just bake unleavened bread. They would have a little, uh, a little game among the kids. Hey, go through the house, kids. See if you can find any leaven, any, any yeast. They'd get it all out of the house. Because yeast symbolized sin, okay? That doesn't mean all bakeries are evil, all right? It was just a symbol for that one time. So Paul, Paul uses that image and says, just like a little bit of yeast just a tiny amount, and you put it in a big lump of dough and it changes the whole thing, changes the structure over the next couple of hours as you leave it in that bowl with a towel over it, that little, little lump of dough rises and, and, and to double or triple its own size. Paul's point is, if you give in on this seemingly minor thing, if you, if you give an inch on this issue of legalism. If you say to the folks in Jerusalem, well, so we can get along with the people in the Jerusalem church and so that we'll we'll, we'll get along with our Jewish brothers, we're going to force all our males to get circumcised. And yeah, we'll start eating the, the kosher diet. And, and yeah, we'll start following all those feasts and festivals and fasts. If you give in on this one thing, it's going to destroy your whole church it's gonna ravage your church just like a little lump, just like a little pinch of yeast goes through a whole lump of dough. And we'll talk more about that later. But yeah, a little legalism, it spreads. Do not tolerate it. Verse 11, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Now, scholars look at that and they're confused because there is no record anywhere in scripture of Paul preaching that people should be circumcised. In fact, as you see here, and in Romans, other places, he's preaching the opposite. Circumcision doesn't matter when it comes to salvation. So why is he saying, if I still preach circumcision? So the speculation, and that's all it is, the speculation is that Paul's enemies threw all kinds of accusations against him. They're just constantly throwing accusations against him just to see what would stick, and perhaps one of them was that they said, you know, when it suits him, Paul's all for circumcision. But in your case, he's not. Maybe they used the fact that when Paul first recruited Timothy, a Gentile boy with a Jewish mother, to be his uh, protege and to be in his ministry team, he had that young man circumcised. And the reason why was he didn't want his lack of circumcision to get in the way of him doing this ministry work, because they were going into synagogues. Their first stop would be a synagogue every time. So I think what Paul is saying is, listen, that's that's not true. Why would I be persecuted if I were preaching that way? It's just a reminder that, and y'all, when I say things like this, y'all should know that I consider myself very well treated in this church. I'm not talking about myself. I'm not complaining. I have nothing to complain about. But... Anybody, life group leader, Bible study leader, preacher, no matter what, anybody who speaks publicly, especially of the gospel, gets criticized. It just happens. And you'll hear things. Some of you know this. You teach the Bible or you've been a pastor. You'll hear things later and people will say, well, you know, this is what he was really saying. And you'll think, gosh, that's the furthest thing from what I was saying. It happens. So Paul is an illustration of that. And then there's verse 12. He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And that means exactly what you think it means. The ASV is very polite. Literally, Paul says, I wish they'd just take a knife and castrate themselves. I grew up on, in, around cattle. I saw it done all the time to cattle. So yeah, this does not shock me. But perhaps it does you, you know, you're thinking, okay, Paul's an apostle. How can he be so crude? How can he be so petulant? How can he be so angry? Well, he's angry at the way the gospel is being perverted. If there's ever a case outside of Jesus in the temple, if there's ever a case of righteous indignation, this is it. Paul is not upset about himself being criticized. That happened everywhere he went. He's upset that good people that he loved who had come to know Christ through his ministry were now doubting their own salvation because of a few legalists who, let's face it, just don't like anybody being happy. So that's what made him angry. And he's like, you know, if they're they're into cutting, let's just go all the way. I laugh when I read that verse every single time, but I guarantee you Paul was not laughing. All right, so we'll, we'll finish tonight with these next three. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, that you are not consumed by one another. So another accusation against Paul that came up over and over again was, if you teach that stuff, it's gonna to lead to immorality. If you teach people that you're saved by grace, no matter what you do, God's gonna forgive you, you don't have to follow the law to be saved, then people are just gonna go out and do whatever they wanna do. And that is a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel and the power of the gospel. In fact, Romans 6 Uh, confronts that directly. Romans 6, you've heard it, you know it. Anytime we baptize someone, you hear it. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. That's directly lifted from Romans 6, where Paul says, quotes this essentially the same thing. Well, shouldn't I just sin all the more so that grace will abound? And Paul says, no, no, that's not the way it works. If you have come to know Christ, then the old you is dead, And that's why you get baptized, to symbolize to your new church family, the old me is dead, I'm raised to newness of life, you can count on me being a new person. Doesn't mean I'll never sin again, but it does mean when I go back to my old sins, it's an unnatural thing, sort of like a a, a zombie, right? So you should call it out. You should come to me and say, hey, I was there when you got baptized. You said you were a new person. So how come you're living like that again? Paul's point is, anybody who's really come to know the gospel, the true gospel. It's not that they won't ever sin again. It's that they won't ever want to sin. They won't want to go back to that. The idea that I would just go, go forth from, the, from my own baptism and say, oh, hallelujah, now I can do whatever I want and God's going to forgive me no matter what. That's the furthest thing from my mind if I'm really saved. And other, instead, my attitude is, Lord, I don't want to let you down. I know you'll forgive me. I'm glad for that, but gosh, after you've done all this for me, the last thing in the world I want to do is bring disgrace to your name. I want, I want, to, I want to make you proud. I want to make you happy. I want to worship you with my life. Um, that's where our freedom is found. In fact, I, I love this image when he says, uh, you were called for freedom. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, don't, don't take this freedom the wrong way and say, I can, I can go break the law. I can go hurt others. No, instead, through love, serve one another. Somebody has pointed out, one scholar pointed out, it's interesting. Paul says, okay, I'm setting you free from your slave master, the law, and I'm making you a slave to others instead. You're not a slave to the law anymore, but now you're a slave to your neighbor because now you have to serve them. That's how you find freedom. Now, we all know that our ultimate master, our real master is Jesus. But what did Jesus say? Love your neighbor as yourself. So in a way, yeah, we find freedom by serving others. And that doesn't sound like freedom, but it is. Some of you know. Some of you know that the day you started paying attention to the needs of other people, the day you stopped self-pitying and complaining and started instead thinking about, well, you know, all this negative energy I've got, I'm going to put it towards praying intercessory prayers for those who are hurting. All of a sudden, the joy in your life increased and the anxiety lowered. That, that serving others is how you get there. That's where our freedom is found. And, and, and that, ver- that last verse, if you bite and devour each other, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Once again, he is... He is giving us that he's reminding us of that hinge point. He says, "Listen, if you go that way of legalism, you're going to eat each other alive." That's what happens in a church. In fact, I want to just say this. You've all seen this happen if you've been in church any amount of time. You've seen a Bible preaching, Jesus worshiping church doctrinally sound, right? Pursuing the scriptures, worshiping the right person, and yet it has it is That church is full of conflict, ugliness, division. It might even split right down the middle. Ugliness that the whole community hears about. How can that happen if they're preaching from the word, if they're worshiping Christ? It's because, well, think about it. If you've ever been a part of that church that that did that, was any of the conflict about biblical truth? Was it about, okay, well, this guy over here is teaching that there's more than one way to salvation. We need to deal with that. It's never about stuff like that or if it is I haven't experienced it that's worth dividing a church over that's worth telling okay all you people who believe that you know Jesus isn't the only way I'm sorry you can't worship here anymore that's not that's not the scriptures but it's never about that instead it's it's i think my way is the only right way this is the way we did it in the church where i was growing up and it better be done that way or it's not of god or it's I'm going to elevate myself by putting everybody around me down. I'm going to find fault in everyone else. I'm going to. My spiritual gift is the 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 gift of of cranial downsizing. Right. My my job is to find somebody who, who is full of joy and, and deflate their balloon, or or it's have no grace toward those who fail. Anybody who sinned, or maybe even hasn't even sinned, just hasn't lived up to my personal standards. I make sure and let them know that they've missed the mark. Or I criticize everyone who I envy, and I'm always on the lookout for a way to catch them in some sin. We're like, we're like, You know, remember Geraldo Rivera back in the day, that, that whole idea of the, the investigative reporter. Aha! I caught you saying something. I caught you, you know, misusing your funds or I caught you, you know, with your secretary instead of your wife. Well, that's the way we sometimes are when we become legalists. I, I want to catch somebody else doing something bad. I want to publicize that because that makes me look better. And that's how churches divide. Paul says, if you take this road, that's where you'll end up. You'll bite and devour each other and eat one another alive. And I have to say, as good as I think things are going at First Baptist Conroe and as much as I thank God for that, that's so fragile because legalism is so tempting. Why is it tempting? Again, because many of us are good at keeping rules, because it just seems simpler simpler. Just give me a list. Just give me a list of things you want me to do. Don't, don't expect me to love my neighbor. That's too hard. Just, just tell, me, you know, tell me a list of things I need to do. Okay, I can, I, can, I can abstain from that stuff. I can do those things. But don't make it about relationships. That's, that's difficult. Watch out for that. Watch out for that mindset. Watch out for that because it can sneak in right here. And yes, I want us to be gracious when we see legalism around us, but I also want us to be firm. I want us to confront it and say, listen, I know you feel strongly about this, but this is not the way. There's nothing in the gospel of what you are pushing right now, my brother or my sister. That is the way we must be. We simply can't say yes to the gospel once, and then let everything nature take its course, we have to live by it. And next time, two weeks from tonight, we'll get into what does it look like to live out the gospel? What what does it mean to follow the spirit instead of the law? That's what the rest of chapter 5 is about. So, thank you all for coming. I'm going to close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the gospel, even though sometimes we don't act like it. We are so grateful, O oh Lord, for this church and for uh, the many gracious people who are here. In fact, I, one of the things I'm so thankful for is uh, the people who have influence in this church, the people who are leaders, are people of grace, and it makes it such a warm and wonderful place. Oh Lord, we know that our, our hearts are tend, tend toward self-condemnation or self-righteousness, and so legalism is so attractive, and sometimes we may not even know we're slipping into it. So give us wisdom, each one of us, to guard our own hearts and to guard our church against this. For it's in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord, we pray. Amen.